All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from Canada. His name is Igor Sarsky, S-A-R-S-K-Y. He and I have been con- in contact and discussing certain aspects of what is known as the smiley face killers phenomenon. I've made two documentaries on the subject and at least over 10 or 15 uh, one-hour interviews also kind of investigating it and a lot of videos as well on my YouTube channel at William Ramsey Investigates. But uh, we've got some interesting or he has some very interesting information that I think kind of comports or overlaps with this phenomenon. And uh, he can talk about it in greater detail. So, uh, Mr. Sarsky, are you there? Uh, yes, well, thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad you agreed to the interview. I know you and I have been kind of chatting about this for people who haven't heard of you. Can you talk about your background and how you became interested in the Smiley Face Killer subject? Um, well, it's funny that you should mention that because I do have a personal connection, so to speak. Um, about 10 years ago, I was in university in Montreal um, and somebody who I knew through a mutual acquaintance, you could have called him a friend, um, was actually a victim. Um, so some of you guys, some of the viewers may know him as Matthew Vesner. He is on the, the Footprints website. Um, uh, his case was really interesting um, and piqued my interest, so to speak, in this phenomenon, um, the smiley face killer phenomenon, so to speak. Um, Vesner was eating dinner in old Montreal and was drugged inside the inside the um, restaurant. He exited the restaurant under the pretense that he was just getting cellular signature. Mm-hmm. Um, he was rambling or he was wandering around downtown Montreal for a little bit, was last seen by a shopkeeper in a completely drugged out state looking for directions. Um, and the next thing they knew, three days later, he was found in the Lachine Canal. Um, what was so interesting about that case to me is, first of all, the victim in question was definitely known to be quite intelligent. He's, you know, not your average uh, person on the street. He's a fairly, uh, has a fairly good head on his shoulders. Um, also, the Lachine Canal at that time of year, um, anybody who's grown up in Montreal, anybody who knows the area, mm-hmm. would never be walking anywhere within anywhere close to Lachine Canal at that time. And what, what type um, of, what time of year was it? So it was, the exact date was December 19th, 2010. And how old was Besner? He was 27. So. And the restaurant in question was L'Original Restaurant. So and how did the, how did the, the kind of investigation progress into his disappearance and death? After his disappearance, they were basically searching for clues about his whereabouts, like every, every uh, one of these cases. Right. Um, the biggest piece of information they found was a shopkeeper who confirmed that he wasn't abducted outside of the restaurant. Um, right? He wandered around for a little bit. It's confirmed that he was drugged inside the restaurant by the investigation, but it wasn't confirmed how he entered the water. As I said, the last person to see him was that shopkeeper. That was the biggest piece of evidence they had. So, so to speak, he was basically last seen wandering downtown Montreal in a drugged out state, um, fairly vulnerable. 
Gotcha. And did he kind of fit the profile of the SFK kind of victims? Down to a T, um, without with not not leaving any characteristic out. Down to a T. Um, and and white, the web college aged, right. um, intelligent, um, athletic, physically fit, I, roughly. Probably. Correct. Yes. He. I mean, he wasn't particularly physically fit, but at the same time, I mean, uh, he definitely, in terms of height and like, in terms of height and characteristics, he certainly fit the profile. And the, whether the, or not he actually yeah. was a smiley face killer victim it has yet to be seen. It, it has just been one of the reasons why I became interested in these cases. And the website that you mentioned earlier was Footprints at the River's Edge. It's a well-known kind of repository for all the cases. There's probably over 200 cases on that website alone of suspicious cases, many of which I covered in my documentaries, but it's a very good resource. So that was kind of your intro or um, how you became interested in this phenomenon. What happened? How did you progress from there? Well, I, I, I started re- like, just like everyone else who got into this, I started re- reading cases on footprints. Um, most of your viewers should probably know that website. Um, reading through the cases, it's obvious that, there isn't one culprit who's responsible for all these deaths. I mean, quite frankly, as you agree, there's, you know, there's all sorts of bad people out there. Um, A young person leaving the bar at night drunk is probably in the most vulnerable state they could possibly be in in their entire life. So to say that somebody's targeting someone at their most vulnerable position is not really, you know, unique, right? Man Um, or woman, right? Man or woman. Correct. I mean, it, so, um, you still there? Yep. So, with regards to uh, how I um, got, how I continued on to my research, I continue. I continually read cases on footprints, and what was so interesting to me was how much of a conundrum these cases were. Um, there's so many intricate details that don't really make sense, including none of these victims being seen going into the water, which right. is extremely odd. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these weird kind of conundrum aspects of the case really made me lose hope. I mean, I'm reading all these cases. I, I lost hope completely that any of them would be solved. It seemed almost like a, just a, a farce, right? Um, first of all, how do you, how do you solve something that multiple people are using as a modus operandi? You can't really, right? because multiple people are using it. So if you were to catch one person doing it, you wouldn't have solved the modus operandi. You would just solve one person using it. Right. Good point. Um, so it was a little bit, I mean, disheartening to me. I never really thought in, in my wildest dreams that I would ever be trying to put a theory forth because quite frankly, as I said, I just didn't think it was worthy of attention. And did your, did your conclusions or your analysis and conclusions of the smiley face killers kind of match uh, my own conclusions or Jim Smith's or some of these other researchers, maybe Gilbertson and Gannon? All three of the researchers you mentioned, including yourself, definitely gave me influence, uh, each one to their certain degrees. Um, with regards to yourself, I would say um, those videos in terms of bringing me back in terms of my research, I would say I stopped my research around 2013 into these cases. I did about a three year stint after the Besner case. Um, and that was at the point in which I just decided that, you know, unsolvable, no longer worthy of any time, put it on the back burner. 
Um, and then your videos started popping up. I mean, I had already read Gannon and, and Duarte's work, or Gannon and Gilbertson's work, sorry, and Duarte. Um, That's uh, case and studies so in drowning forensics, case studies in drowning forensics, sorry. Correct. I had already digested that, so I'd already been knowledgeable about that before I had made the decision that it was unsolvable. Um, in terms of Jim Smith, um, I mean, I think Jim is bringing some attention to some cases, which I think is fantastic. Anyone, anyone who's bringing attention to case, case facts, I think is really fantastic because you're just getting it out there. Um, I can't say that there's any particular theory that I've kind of agreed with him on, but um, it, as I said, in terms of your videos, the videos you started putting out on YouTube, the Vimeo videos you started putting out regarding Aleister Crowley and um, the occult connections into the Smiley Face Killer, um, I would say piqued my interest. Um, I definitely didn't initially think that it had any merit, but um, it certainly piqued my interest and made me want to learn more. Um, and so I would say that you, I would say you out of those three was that were definitely be my uh, largest, um, my and, largest uh, influence. And you and I, we had talked about some cases, particularly New York, which is a hot spot. I know Boston's a hotspot, but some of these things you did, you kind of were clearly still asking questions. And then, um, you know, can you take it from there? What, what, uh, how did they progress to what, what we're going to sure. talk about tonight? Sure. So, I mean, prior to me seeing your videos, the largest, I mean, lead, so to speak, that I thought was available on the Smiley Face Killers was the grouping of cases in New York. Now, a lot of people talk about the Patrick McNeil case as being ground zero. A lot of people discuss the Wisconsin cases. That's, you know, on the tip of everyone's tongue. Nobody really seems to connect kind of the string of cases that actually happened in New York. That seemingly, in my opinion, was the birthplace of where this kind of occurrence or phenomenon or modus operandi, whatever you want to call it, started happening. Um, for your viewers, um, maybe I can just go through the names quickly so they can kind of get Please their do. own. Please do. Um, the first case I noticed was Samuel Todd um, in Lower Manhattan in 84. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail because your, uh, your, your, your viewers will be able to put these together and realize awesome, how yeah. they connect. Um, the second one would be Vernon Kent, 23. Um, First, Samuel Todd was 24. Vernon Kent is 23 years old, January 1st, 1993, missing in Manhattan as well. So Samuel Todd missing January 1st. Vernon Kent missing January 1st, nine years later. New Year's, um, New Year's Eve, both on New Year's Eve. Both just disappeared without a trace in Manhattan, which is quite odd. None, neither of those were recovered, by the way. Those were not drowning victims. Those were both missing. Just missing, right? Okay. Barely missing. Just they haven't, I don't think that at that point in time, anyone had discovered the MO or the MO hadn't been polished. And I assume they were just disposing of bodies, how a typical person would dispose of a body not to make it found. Um, then came Patrick Neal. So you have the double missing. And then in Manhattan came Patrick Neal, the case we know is a homicide, which gives credence to the fact that the first two missings were also homicides or could potentially be homicides be lumped together right or grouped together correct because we know from all the case files with patrick mcneil he was followed after he left the bar he was abducted there was there was all kinds of wounds on his body um the lividity didn't make sense i mean just you have to read drowning in forensics if you want to like just to start that rabbit hole but 
Right. And they, I mean, they actually had the, um, the autopsy, which was given to the family like 10 years later. And Cyril Wecht was reviewed it and said the guy had been blowtorched on the upper part of his body, really brutal, hit in the head with a claw hammer or something like that. Yeah, which just really makes you think about what's going on there. Um, I made this comment to you already. A lot of these cases have a theme where the family does not engage a secondary autopsy um, for two reasons. One, because they're extremely costly. I mean, extremely, extremely costly for a guy like Cyril Wecht to come in and assess your case but also be the emotional toll it takes to kind of swirl, swirl all those emotions back up again and deal with all those issues again um, is too much for most families. Um, and what's, what's interesting is you see, a, I mean, the only cases really where you see some of these guys come in are the ones where they actually do find issues with the coroner's report. And it makes you think in terms of the, the mathematics of it all, if, this, if that low percentage are getting secondary autopsies and that high percentage are finding. Right. Excellent point. Absolutely. McNeil was one. Dakota James was one. Also involved Cyril Wecht, you know, found the ligature marks around his neck, which I think even a lay person could go, hey, there's something wrong here. Uh, which yeah, was, I, I don't mean, think noticed by this guy from China was the was the medical examiner in Pittsburgh. I mean, the whole thing's super sketchy. And if you don't mind, can you stop clicking your pen? Because I'm sure somebody's going to complain about it. Sorry, it's okay. It's for sure. It's okay. I've done it on other, other interviews. So anyway, but Patrick McNeil, uh, yeah. So he was a student at Fordham, going north. Kind of fits this. Even your friend uh, or this guy you knew, Matthew Besner, kind of something like that. Well, Patrick McNeil and Matthew Besner were one and the same. They were in their most vulnerable point they could ever be at in their entire lives, coming out of a bar late at night in very cold weather, both, both people. So there's assuredly very few people on the, on the street um, and extremely intoxicated, which as, it, as anyone knows, is impossible to defend yourself in that manner. Um, but I want to continue just in, along Please the do. cases. Please do. So the next, the next case is Larry Andrews, which is, he was 22 years old. That was on January 1st as well. Right. That was one um, year and, later after McNeil, right? Correct. So, January 1st, 1998, in Manhattan, Times Square. Um, and he was drowned just like Patrick Neal. Yeah, he was, was found the, in the same water treatment facility in the Hudson, right? Owlhead Park, correct. Owlhead Park, thank you. Um, continuing on, we have Joshua Bender, who was 19. Um, this was four, four, five months later than Larry Andrews. Um, upper Manhattan, um, missing went missing may 12th recovered may 24th and water drowned right up i think yes yeshiva university found um in the hudson if i remember correctly correct his family was ultra jewish and they didn't want to have a autopsy because of because of their beliefs exactly yeah correct um the next case would be brandon mcnellis 20 years old on march 2nd 2002 um this is in Binghamton, New York. So we're moving out of um, we're moving out of Manhattan a little bit here, but still um, with within a very close radius. Right. Um, went missing March second. Um, recovered May fifteenth in the Susquehanna River. The next case, which is a very popular case among smiley face killer researchers, um, and it's also featured in Drowning Forensics, is Adam Falcon. Adam is a particularly interesting case because he 
was leaving the bar um, extremely intoxicated was I, I believe he was kicked out of the bar or was 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 refused a drink at the bar because he was so intoxicated and was last seen at early morning um, leaving the tavern. Um, so just just like every other case, um, and he was found on he went missing on November thirteenth, found on November eighteenth in the Grass River. Gotcha. Um, and then the next case, which is kind of brings us back to the first two cases, which cases, which is Ian Burnett. So if you remember, Samuel Todd and Vernon Kent went missing January 1st, never recovered. Here we have Ian Burnett missing December 30th, 2011, also on New Year's Eve, partying in Upper Manhattan, just like Samuel Todd, just like Vernon Kent, recovered, not in the water, missing, still missing. Mm-hmm. Um same. So let, let me give you the dis- physical description of Samuel Todd, Vernon Kent, and Ian Burnett. And these cases sandwich the five cases, the Falcon, McNellis, Bender, Andrews, McNeil cases, which are basically prototypical smiley face killer cases. Okay. Um, the physical description of the guys missing. So we have Ian Burnett, white, 5'8", 131. Vernon Kent, white, 6'170". Samuel Todd, white, 5'11", 135. Um, the exact same, right? The exact same. A little undersized, yeah. Maybe. Correct. A little undersized, correct. Um, certainly easy to subdue if they're if they're drunk, without a doubt. Um, and so this is something to consider with all these cases. Only two of them didn't happen in Manhattan. Only two. That was Brandon McNellis and Adam Falcon, which actually happened very close to each other um, in New York. Um, two years, two years apart from each other. So they're still related, but all the other cases I just listed happened in Manhattan, which to me is absolutely insane. Um, yeah. Blows all, blows all reason out of the water. No doubt. In that small kind of general area. Yeah. So what were your conclusions after looking at all of those cases? There was certainly something interesting there. Um, but as I said, after, after re- reviewing kind of everything there was on the smiley face killers from top to bottom, um, I didn't feel like there was any theory that really made sense. Everything kind of was kind of jumbled and nothing was presented in a manner that needed it, that it needed to be, um, in terms of, to make it believable. I mean, you had all kinds of left and right theories from the left theories from the right, you know, you have, uh, I, I don't even want to list them, but anyways, I mean, I just, I just, I had a, I had a penchant for going through these theories, seeing, seeing, you know, what, what the basis for them were. Right. Um, well, and, I mean, um, some people th- c- concluded that it was, uh, they were looking for the certain racial group, right? So there were usually white men. So that was one of the theories for one reason or another. There's a reason why they're selecting the university students because they're smarter. There's something going on there. Why are these targeted instead of working you know, working class guys or people of that nature. Um, you know, also, heard- I think I, I think I'd like to add that not necessarily they're targeting college age students or college age people, but rather the type of person to be coming out of a bar late at night after a binge drink is not your forty year old man with three right. kids. Correct. Um, so, typically speaking, if that's who you're looking for, your victim pool is that of college age you know the type those type of people right the the college age guys who go in there binge drink till 2 a.m 
get wasted and then go outside and throw up for two hours, right? We've all been there. I've been there. I mean, you know what I mean? So that's college, yeah, college times. Exactly. Good times. Good times. So, so what, 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 how did you progress on in your research? Okay. So Patrick McNeil was obviously the most interesting case because I mean, out of all the cases, it's the only one that has been proven a homicide. Um, all the other cases that sandwich Patrick that I just listed have been deemed accidental drownings, missing bodies, non-recovered bodies. Right. Um, These are the New York cases you're talking about, right? Yeah. The New York cases I like to focus on specific groupings of cases because to me, as I said, if you focus on the entire North America cases, caseload, then you're just, I mean, as I said, who knows, who knows what's happening in other States. I mean, you got to just focus on specific areas and hope to God that you can kind of get connections within that area. Um, but how I progress. So Patrick Neal was the most interesting case to me. Um, and the most interesting part of the autopsy report that I read was that he had three different types of wounds inflicted to him. Excuse me. The first type of wound was burning. The second type of wound was drowning, which was what the autopsy said he succumbed to, his cause of death was. Um, The original autopsy, not Cyril Wex. Let me just differentiate. And the third was uh, suffocation as he had ligature marks around his neck. Um, Now it's funny because they say in university that only 20% of the case or the courses you take are worth anything. And the other 80% are just filler courses. You know, there's no reason to take a course. Like, you know, there's no reason to pay attention to those filler courses. Well, I paid attention in some of those courses. Um, And that brought back some weird, weird connection that I had learned about in school in one odd classical course. I think I can't remember if we were dealing with anyways, regardless, that's not important. The the important part is, is that that tripartite death actually leads back to a common sacrificial method. And I initially thought that I'm like, okay, that's a weird connection. Um, Is it worth, you know, following up on? I'm like, okay, I'll follow up on it. So I did. And I think so I'm glad I did. Can you explain <laughs> the tripartite death and where it goes back? It's a classical, uh, it goes back into the classics, correct? Correct. So um, if you look at pagan mythology or Celtic mythology, I'm not, so I'm not totally knowledgeable about this part. As I said, I've done limited research on it because my research took me to a place. So I did stop on this. However, what it is associated with is three Celtic slash pagan gods known as Tutades, Essus, and Tyrannus. And each of those gods are known as having a specific sacrificial method for, for, for appeasing them. Mm-hmm. Um, all th- the, the, they're interesting because all three of those gods are potentially known as one god um, named Logos or Lugus, which is a three-headed god. So, essentially, the tripartite death leads to paganism, um, directly to paganism. Um, and so I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, so what do we know about paganism? Paganism was expelled by the Christians in Ireland by Saint Patrick, famously. Interesting. When did 
Patrick Neal go missing, he went missing over over uh, um, St. Patrick's Day. That was the middle of basically the the sandwich of his the date he went missing, and he is obviously Irish, and his name is Patrick. That's like a really weird connection. So I'm like, okay, I might as well continue down this little road here, right? And then I started realizing that paganism was act neo paganism is actually quite popular in the Irish diaspora. Where is the Irish diaspora? Exactly where the Smiley Face Killer caseload has kind of proliferated in that same area. Um, right. And that's so, not that's not my theory, but that's kind of just a, a, a thing I noticed, so to speak. Right. So the Celtics are through Boston, North, New York, um, up into uh, Minnesota, even up there. I mean, the, you the, just the, named all the smiley face killer hotspots. Right. So all these hotspots, but the three part death actually, I mean, if you look at it, it's a Welsh legend as well which um, it goes back to Merlin. So it's actually, you can even look it up on Wikipedia. So oh, it's, it's extremely well known yes. in pagan and neo-pagan circles. Um, and that's kind of how I got to my theory is how well known that is. Um, because I followed, I followed the tripartite death to neo-paganism. And I started doing some research into some neo-pagan covens just for fun, to see what's what, to see if they mention any of these gods, to see if they're doing any kind of sacrifices to these three gods. It's worth a shot, right? right. Um, and then I find out that this tripartite theory is massive within these neo-pagan communities. And I find I'm on Facebook one night, just, you know, Googling, you know, random, just, you know, deep web type of, you know, stuff, just looking at random Facebook pages. And I find one of these covens that has a Facebook cover page of exemplifying the tripartite death. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, what the hell? Like, Right. So these people are still, some people are still keeping that alive. Right. Very much so. It is a very large part of neo-pagan or pagan legend and part of neo-pagan culture. Very, very popular. Right. Um, so as I saw it, I saw that, um, this was still very popular among the circles. And I also noticed that the one God who was the most powerful God, it looked like among the, the three of the gods, Tutades, who was basically, who's basically translated as God of the people. So he's not really, so some scholars have theorized that he's not actually a specific God, but he's a different God to different tribes because he's called god of the people right so he's your god right? right however his specific method of death of 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 sacrifice was drowning um which which was which was basically really piqued my interest on this um because we we had to have people in in america doing this right and we had to have people who were interested in drowning someone right i mean at the most basic level of profiling someone right of the smiley face killer that's what we had to have right so I thought it was Some an interesting kind of water connection. Death. But according to like literary evidence, it says victims sacrificed to Tutades were killed by being plunged headfirst into a vat filled with an unspecified liquid. Correct. And when you do research, it's water um, and it's a vat of water. So a vat of liquid, most likely water. Um, so the tripartite death is, if you go through the Merlin route, Merlin basically foretells his death by his own death by three different methods in the same time or three different 
avenues at the same time. Um, and that's kind of the same way the Celtic legend goes is that you have to kind of sacrifice to, I guess, um, the three gods either at the same time or by themselves. Uh, I'm not quite certain about that. Um, but I did follow Tutades and the three gods to paganism. And what I found interesting about that is that this neo-pagan connection to the three Parshai death doesn't stop at neo-paganism. Pagans, right. It actually has proliferated to all sorts of different ideologies and um, you know, one in particular would be the uh, Wotan's folk, which is very popular in prison. Um, it's a uh, it's a technically a neo-pagan uh, uh, grouping of yeah, exactly like yeah, neo-Nazis, and it's something that I definitely don't know too much about, but it's 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 an example of that for sure. Um, and I, I followed kind of where that led. Um, and I realized that a lot of these Wotan's folk were also talking about the order of nine angles. Gotcha. So when I started to research the order of nine angles, I realized that it was one of something kind of like Wotan's folk that has derived its roots from classical paganism and also Hellenic Hermeticism kind of like a fusion of the two. Right. Well, there's a lot of other stuff in there. There's also Welsh uh, elements, right? There's also Celtic notions. So it's almost kind of like the ONA is... Uh, a snowball of different yes. uh, ideologies. Yes, well said. So that led you to the ONA. Then what happened? Well, I mean, I started researching the ONA. Um, I'm going to... I mean, we're going to delve into that, obviously, right now. But I think uh, with regards to your viewers, anyone who's... Um, listening to this, I think it's the, my goal here today is to put you on your own path to read the stuff that I have read to basically see what I see, what I have seen, I guess, so to speak. Um, right. I'm going to kind of guide you in the right direction. Um, and you can make your own personal opinions about what you think about my theory. Um, and I mean, I, I, I very much welcome that. I very much welcome that. And that's kind of my goal here. My goal is not to prove to you that I'm right. It's kind of to help you maybe get, get to the same point that I am at. And maybe you can see eye to eye with me in that regard. So, so what is your kind of approach once you got to the ONA, then what? Well, so I realized, so I started reading about the ONA. So essentially for your viewers, the ONA is a satanic ideology that, as I already said, it draws its roots from classical paganism and Hellenic Hermeticism, but also a snowball of other stuff, as you just mentioned. Um, it operates as a broad network of associates, in a sense, that are inspired by the canon that was originally authored by a man named Anton Long. So it's not necessarily a group in itself, but more of an ideology that permeates other groups, like Wotan's Folk, like um, Adam Waffen, which is another group that's permeated. Um, Neo-Nazi, hardcore neo-Nazi group. Hardcore neo-Nazi group. a lot group. of occultism in it. I mean, that's a whole Also, Also neo-paganism. It is proliferated neo-paganism. So, yes, so 
Um, so that's how I got there, right? So through the neo-pagan kind of highway is how I got to the ONA. Um, so I started real, I started reading about them, um, and I started getting into the canon, as I said, which is basically the central kind of heartbeat of the ideology and which was authored by, uh, Anton Long, which is essentially a pseudonym. Most people say an alleged a pseudonym for allegedly for a guy named David Myatt. Um, it's not been proven that it was him, but I mean, if you go on the internet, it's almost People take it as almost as like gospel that Anton Long is a pseudonym for David Mine, among other pseudonyms as well. Correct. It seems like they do have a lot of pseudonyms. It's part of kind of the way that they craft their ideology is to make it very confusing and labyrinth-like. I guess a a to deter people from you know people who don't really have the heart for it, or b to kind of you know confuse people who are looking into them. Um, you really got to have you really got to have um, some time on your hands and some some uh, some patience when you're well, looking. Into it, these there's people. also probably another uh, aspect to it, which is to avoid the responsibility for any actions that take place. Um, Fantastic! By, by point, somebody, well. somebody picks up the ideology, right? So no onus is upon the actual author; it's upon the people conducting. Fantastic point. Fantastic point. Which is why the Smiley Fiends killers, in my mind, have been so hard to catch because you're not looking for a group or a single person or a group of people or an infrastructure where with, that has like a head, like the cult of Manson or the church of Satan. Um, you're looking for an ideology, which is you can't really catch an ideology in a bottle, right? Or you can't right. imprison an ideology behind bars. Correct. Very true. And then, I mean, that's something like this non-hierarchical people have postulated or speculated that the SFK Events are taking taking place with the cell structure. Similar crimes take place at certain times. Certain dates are important. And uh, so uh, it kind of fits into how, uh, at least topically, the ONA operates. Correct. So, I mean, the main theory behind the ONA ideology, excuse me, sorry, um, is pretty much like described as Satanism elite. Um, I mean, that's to say that they pretty much like disregard other forms of Satanism as, as illegitimate. And they pretty much espouse that ONA is, ONA, sorry, is the only true form of Satanism. Um, and you'll see that through a lot of their works. I mean, they really do um, insult and talk down upon other forms of Satanists, um, kind of as, you know, cheap Mickey Mouse type of Satanists. Right. They mention um, names too. I mean, they actually flat out to talk about Crowley and uh, Aquino as not, um, not really inc- uh, encapsulating the, you know, the, the so-called, I mean, in LaVey as well, actually is not, uh, not being properly satanic enough, I guess. Oh, correct. Yeah. They, they definitely, uh, they don't leave anyone, uh, they roast everyone. That's for sure. Yeah. Or, um, or why it uh, does, if I can read this quote other than, uh, you know, he says, uh, Alistair Crowley hilariously dubbed the wickedest man in the world for simply indulging himself in his fantasies and now regarded as an influential icon of rebellion. And Anton LaVey, the archetypal Magian charlatan and plagiarist, now hilariously regarded as the founder of some sort of modern rebellious philosophy. Exactly. So that's kind of a a central part of their uh, ideology is that um, if you want to... um, be a true Satanist. Um, if you want to, you know, experience true Satanism, 
um, it's through the ONA way. It's not through any of these other ways, um, which is a very key part, I guess, to the theory. Um, but we can continue, I guess, in that regard. Yeah, please continue. Um, I mean, I want to continue on the elitist point in okay, that. Good. I mean, their their ideology is beyond that. They feel they're themselves better than other Satanists. Um, it's it's elitist. It's also elitist in a sense that they believe in a form of natural justice, and kind of like a way a need for the for society to weed out the weak in order to evolve, um, and to get to the point that they need to be. Um, so pretty much the central philosophy of the ONA is essentially to aid the, this evolution through magical and practical means. Like that's what they say is right. to aid the evolution of society through magical and practical means. Right. Oh, they use, they have this very unique kind of, or, or Maya created this very unique terminology. And there's a lot of terms that I've never seen used or, or implemented in any other contexts. But he uses the terms over and over again, causal and acausal. So causal is like the practical real world world. And then acausal is the magical kind of, uh, he doesn't really specify it as a, a particular dimension, but he seems to think that that's like the uh, non-material world, causal and acausal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I said, there's so many interesting stuff here to unpack. Um, it's quite it's quite crazy because considering the amount of literature that's been released for the ONA, um, it's all out there. I mean, and there's nothing hidden. Um, they do claim that there is esoteric knowledge transmitted orally that isn't online, right. um, which I do. I guess I believe, but um, in regards to what is online, there's a lot. Yes, yes, that's very true. There's a lot to go through. Supposedly nonfiction and fictional, although the fiction is really kind of implements non-fictional ideas, so it's a little more paradoxical. Exactly. Yeah. No, you have a you have a good read on it for sure. Um, so I, let me just let me just add that when you take into account what their essential aim is of what the essential aim is of their ideology, which is to um, aid the evolution by practically by by practical and magical means. Um, it's no, it's no wonder that they actually worship Baphomet in their religion, um, because when you look into Baphomet, Baphomet is the symbol of a revolutionary heretical tradition, um, basically saying that there would soon lead to an emancipation of humanity and establishment of a, uh, of a, uh, of a like a higher order, right? right. Um, and that's what ba Baphomet is a symbol of, is establishing like a higher order essentially just basically evolving humanity right i mean that's essentially emancipation of humanity when i read that line it makes me think of saving humanity right and that's what ONA is talking about is through practical means uh, they're basically saying that society will not evolve by itself we need to take practical and magical means to aid evolution right 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 that's so I thought the, the connection they, to Baphomet's interesting. Yeah, I, I do. I think it's important. So they adopt this other, you know, symbol from the Western esoteric, sim, uh, you know, systems, Baphomet, the symbol of Baphomet. And that's definitely one part of their hierarchy of gods, I guess you could call it. One of the other aspects I'd like to add also is their the ideas that are encapsulated within the ONA. They have contempt for most almost anybody so they're the in they're the center of this you know universe that they created and everybody else is a mundane 
which I find very synonymous with uh, J.K. Rowling's muggles, right? So the mundanes are, uh, you know, not, and they're, these are capitalized. So these are very general terms, the way that it's written out. So you see this uh, mm-hmm. oppositional adversarial view between the Drek, who they call the ONA or the Dark Warriors, and then the mundanes. And then the, the, the mundanes are defined a certain way, and then the ONA followers are, are defined a certain way. Correct. So let me let me add on that here. So this is a very key concept to my theory. Um, you're talking about mundanes. Mundane is a general term they're using for basically anyone who isn't them, which basically is everybody who is a them. It's a lot of people on Earth. Um, however, they've basically focused their hatred or or basically focused their um, their sights on one particular issue with the Western ethos. Um, and that is what they call the Nazarene and or Magian influence, um, which they, which Anton Long says has ultimately bred a certain type of human being aptly titled homo hubris. So homo hubris would essentially be a lower tier of mundane. They're right. not just, they're not just not Oni NA. They are officially stopping humanity from evolving. They are, right. they, are, they are basically making sure that humanity can evolve, and they are basically the scum of the earth, homo hubris. Right. So homo hubris comes out of Nazarene, meaning Jesus, right, the teachings of Christianity, in a very broad sense. Correct. And Magian, I think there's a definition of Magian as well. Of, Correct. Uh, I, can, you know. I can give that. Okay. Um, give me a second here. So the definition of homo hubris by Anton Long standards, while I pull it up, um, is described as a subspecies of the genus homo, which has in the last 300 or so years become the dominant species inhabiting the industrialized countries of what is called the West. They can be characterized as self-indulgent, arrogant, and focused on nothing but strength, power, and their own gratification. So that's kind of like a direct, um, a direct um, definition from Anton Long in terms of what homo hubris is. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Please continue. But here, here it is. Here, just to, if I can add to that, he says homo hubris or writes, aka mundane mundanes, who are not only the project of the Magian ethos, but who keep the Magian ethos alive and their Magian masters in power to the detriment of our evolution. So just like you said, these are um, people who are keeping us from evolving. Correct. They're worse than mundanes. And there's the right, use, there's a subhuman, under intermention, sorry, a very specific to, you know, the Nazi national socialism. Uh, he uses the word untermention. And maybe a little background on Maya too. He came out of the white supremacy movement in the UK and was a member or at least the chief ideologue of a group called the National Socialist Movement in the UK. So it was clearly uh, some kind of white supremacy type of group. And also these writings of the ONA kind of started around the 80s, around the time that, if my understanding is correct, and I I can't say I've done tons of research on it, but 
um, right around the time that Myatt slash Long, allegedly Long, um, was active in the National Socialist Movement. Correct. So you can see a lot of his past, kind of where he was at with his philosophy. I mean, the guy himself is an absolute um, conundrum wrapped in an enigma, like the definition of that extremely uh, overused term. Um, He started um, with his uh, neo-Nazi roots within Britain um, with the far uh, right party. Um, And then he made his way to um, Islam before basically renouncing Islam after being there for, I think, five or so years, five or ten years. And then basically drafting all of the canon for the ONA after all of that. Um, Just, 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 uh, I mean, looking into the guy will make your head spin. Right, and it's very (laughs) unusual because he he has a classicist view because he's also translated... Um, some of these old literature from, you know, the Greeks, just like you were talking about earlier, this kind of uh, thing. But I think he actually, like, translated Aeschylus, like some, you know, things people don't generally read. Uh, so he is clearly, uh, you know, dipping his beak into different pools, so to speak. He's, he's, he's looking at all kinds of stuff. And then the Hermeticism, the Greek Hermeticism as well. But uh, he can't he counterpoises or, or counterbalances or juxtaposes the terms sinister and numinous. So numinous Ooh. is kind of like this, uh, if you want to go Apollonian Dionysian dichotomy is like the numinous is this upstanding intellectual. And then the sinister is all of these dark things. And, and yeah, he has a very, like you said, it's very contra- seemingly contradictory. A lot of his uh, ideology and his life really. At least, exactly. ex- at least externally, at least externally, because he does say in some of his things, the outer form can vary. So he's talking about forms and, and impressions in certain parts of his writing. So, yeah, it's very. He's also talking here. about utilizing these exterior groups, such as neo-Nazism, such as Islam, such as Satanism. Those all fit in the same category. He utilizes those to his own, as he says, um, to affect aeonic change. So he's not necessarily a Satanist. He's not necessarily uh, an Islamic, an Islamist. He's not necessarily um, a uh, neo-Nazi. He just utilized those vassals as a way to affect aeonic change. Um, And that's what the ONA is. It's essentially a vassal, um, less so than the neo-Nazis in that sense. It's more of I, would, I wouldn't call it a vassal. I would call it more of a uh, fungal infection that can kind of infect any vassal. Um, rather than being a vassal in itself, the ONA is more of a fungal infection for a vassal that kind of gets in and kind of, you know, gets to the roots of that vassal and kind of, you know. Yeah, could, I mean, do you want to cover insight rules, his concept of what insight rules are in that regard? I mean, we, we can get to that within, okay. the, within the factor of culling, I okay. would say. Okay. Um, but that's a, that's a fantastic, fantastic uh, point as well. It's also very interesting. Um so I have the definition for home, for uh, Magian, by the way. Okay. If you're, if you're yeah, please do. That. Please do. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, the Magian ethos, um, oh, sorry, the term Magian is used to refer to the hybrid ethos of Yahud and of Western Hubriati, which is what Western Hubriati is basically the rulers of the Western world. So people who are in power, Hubriati is like the, 
the homo hubris, but who are in power. Hubris is pride, prideful, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, And also refer to those individuals who are Magian by either breeding or nature. Um, The Magian ethos expresses the fundamental materialistic belief, the idea of homo hubris, Yehud and the hubriati, that the individual self and thus self-identity is the most important and the most fundamental thing, and that the individual, either alone or collectively, can master and control everything, including themselves. If they have the right techniques, the right tools, the right methods, the right ideas, the right money, the right power, the right influence, the right words, that human beings have nothing to fear but because they are in control. So that he's essentially, the Magians are the people who are in control, and the Mundanes and the Homo Hubris are the people who are basically below the Magian class. Um, and it's interesting. Magian, you know, sorry, please yeah, continue. So last thing I'm going to say, Magians as a breed, continuing on his, on his thoughts, Magians as a breed are a specific type of human being. They are the natural exploiters of others, possessed of an instinctive type of human cunning and a, and a very and personal nature. Over, uh, over the past millennia, they have developed a talent for manipulating other human beings, especially Western mundanes. Um, so that's kind of gives you an idea of where kind of the hierarchy in terms of where they view um, these people and what kind of these terms mean. Right. Like it's contemptuous, you know, uh, yeah, like, yeah. And I mean, you talk about the aeonic change. It's kind of a term I think comes from Crowley, this idea of a new aeon. So they're, they're juxtaposing the old aeon and they're aching to, create this new aeon that has the ideals of the ONA. So a lot of these, whatever they're doing is try to bring in this new aeon. Correct. And homo hubris, Magians are basically standing in their way. Yeah. There's the Um, de-evolutionary forces. So they want to evolve to this new aeon. Somebody's a subhuman species. That's actually a quote. So they're using the intermention and subhuman species. And remember how they characterize, for the viewers, um, just who are watching, remember how they characterize um, homo hubris. Can be characterized as self-indulgent, arrogant, focused on nothing but strength, power, and their own gratification. So um, what's interesting is they take this a step further. So in... um, in um, some more of Anton Long's writings, he talks about a classification of homo hubris, which is called the good timer. And his, in his words, the essence of the good timer is self-expression, that they feel they have a right to express and indulge themselves and lack any real self-control of, or lack any real control of themselves. For them, the world and often other people are a means, a personal source of pleasure, are a means sorry, a personal source of pleasure, enjoyment, and opportunity. Central to the good timer is having mates, using vulgar language, and being a real man. And these real men, with their mates, of course, can be found in most cities and towns of the modern West, especially on Friday and Saturday nights, where they will be having a good time. Wow. Wow, it's it's just incredible. So we basically have... Anton Long himself breaking it down for us. He's not only classifying homo hubris as self-indulgent, arrogant, and focused on nothing but strength, power, and gratification. He's basically saying that people who go out and have 
way more of a good time than they should have, right? You know, the type who go out and binge drink, the type who just go out and start fights and then, you know, just are like, wow, that was a crazy night. Like I had so much fun, you know, like those type of people. He's basically focusing it on, he's basically focusing the raids on a characteristic of certain type of people in terms of where homo hubris is at its worst in current society. Right. And didn't he also add something about like a contempt for the <laughs> use of alcohol? Um, Wasn't that in that other word? There was another word that he used. Maybe, I don't know. I thought we. Yes. It. Yes. Correct. Correct. So that's, I have that. Here. I'm pulling out my chart here because I have a chart of how everything connects, which, um, which I think has been very helpful for me because this has been kind of uh, crazy. Um, so when we're looking at the word, it's called Khmer, K-H-A-M-R. Um, and Anton Long specifically relates that to homo hubris and um, basically the good timer. It's quite, it's quite evident that his Islamic roots right before he wrote the ONA are kind of influencing him because um, as most Islamists would know, they visualize a perfect society as a society where nobody drinks. Right. Um, like, it's totally forbidden. Or what is it? Haram? Uh, have you confirmed? Cause I did, I didn't, you know, I wasn't clear to me, but he wrote all of his own ONA literature after being part of the white supremacy and the Islam. Do you know if that's the truth or was he writing it during that time? Listen, uh, I'm fairly certain he wrote it after he renounced okay. the, um, the, his, uh, his Islamism ties, but I can't be certain. Okay. Um, I, I, cause so, it wasn't clear to me either. I don't, I don't know. Correct. And who knows, some of these things don't have dates on them. Some of the things they're right. writing um, they I think they're doing that on purpose. They're putting odd, like, you know, they're putting their own dates on it, like 121st year of Fayen, right? right? Like who knows what that means, right? Like, well, that's one of the orally transmitted terms that nobody even knows what Fayen means. Correct. So, so let's continue on this. So the terms, so for your viewers, the terms homo hubris and Magian are extremely important to our theory, to this theory that we're, we're talking about because um as as we already said they're basically the main roadblock between uh an idyllic society or a society that has evolved or a a society that has got to the point where it has evolved um and what's so important about that is drum roll please um the ONA has extensive writings regarding culling this type of individual um, it's like a key to, I would say it's almost a key to their, their fundamental tenets. It's not only them. a, it's not only a key to go one step further. It is a, a fundamental right for achieving a rank. Right. And B, it is the, one of the main ways in which they affect aonic change. So you can affect the onic change in any way, shape, or form, but through ONA literature, it's obvious that the main way that they can actually and practically affect aonic change is by, in Anton Long's words, culling dross, culling homo hubris, culling these types of people, the good timers, right? The type of people that are blocking evolution. Right the non-evolutionary forces. And can you talk about where it's found in the literature and describe what, what this calling is in greater detail? 
Correct. And I mean, I would love to make some, some, uh, I would love to make, uh, my stuff, uh, my, I have tons of links, tons of, uh, information that, um, is available to anyone that emails me, um, who wants to kind of take a deeper dive. Um, I have no problem kind of sending anyone my stuff. What's your email um, again? I'll, I'll put that at the end there. Okay. We can um, just add it at the end. No problem. Yeah. But I have no problem with that. Um, so with regards to, there's some interesting, there's a lot of interesting texts where they do talk about culling. The one of the most central texts of the ONA is called the culling texts, quite <laughs> frankly. Um, yeah, exactly. And they're not, they're not hiding anything. Um, they're, they're talking, they're talking in circles a little bit, but the, it's all out there. You know, there's no stretching of the imagination with regards to the writing. Um, it's very clear. Um, so let's talk about the culling or let's, let's, I mean, I want to continue a little bit where we're at because I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we're, we're at homo hubris, um, which is a fantastic, um, fantastic point for this to, to take in the good timer archetype of homo hubris, which is Anton Long's words. Um, that's a very important point for your viewers. Um, so there's two archetypes that Anton Long describes with regards to being able to combat these types of people. We have the deadly outlaw. The essence of the deadly outlaw, this is in Anton Long's words, is that they are real outlaws outside of the laws of the state which they reject. Instead, they live by their own laws based on the law of personal honor, and which law means that they would prefer to die fighting rather than surround, surrender to the forces of the state. For such a surrender... To such people who obey such abstract, impersonable, dishonorable laws would be such a would be a personal humiliation and affront to their honor and their dignity as outlaws. Um, he uses a term. This is where a very important term comes in called vindex. V i n d e x. He describes the archetype of the deadly outlaw in terms of being a warrior of Vindex. So he says the warriors of Vindex are those tribes and those deadly outlaws who come together under the charismatic leadership of Vindex to write their names and that of their tribes into the history of our human species and who represent par excellence, the triumph of aristocratic personal honor over the lifeless and personal tyrannic abstractions of the Magians over the dishonor of the Hubriati and over the plebeian self-indulgent nature of homo hubris. So Vindex um, within kind of like a kind of a uh, general, general knowledge is, um, is described by Anton Long as the name given to the person male or female who by practical deeds brings into a new way of life, brings into being a new way of life, and who confronts, defeats through forces of arms, those forces which represent the dishonor and the impersonal tyranny so manifest in the modern world, especially in what is convenient to call the West. So Vindex is essentially a step further of the outlaw archetype. It's a person who, as I said, it's a person who by practical deeds bring uh, AIDS evolution within a nutshell. Right, so he had he had these kind of examples of the ideal ONA, deadly outlaw, Vindex, and also like a tribal warrior too. So he re-emphasizes and counter poses these tribes against this big Magian, you know, uh, modern 
desiccated society. So these tribals and independent people, warriors, yeah, so. He continues, he says, the main opponent of Vindex, both on the practical in terms of ethos, is the Magian. The main allies of the Magian have been the Hubriati of the West, that is the vulgar Western oligarchy, which had originally bred and maintained the white hordes of Homo hubris. Um, so as you can see, he's connecting everything here. Um, he's connecting um, Homo hubris to Vindex, which is connected to the Magians, which is connected to um, the problems that they are at the root of what they view as at the root of what they view as the issues with society. Right. So there's the problem. And what's the solution? What's their proposed solution? Correct. So that's basically where the theory starts to gain its teeth. This information ties into the SFK phenomenon. Correct. So um, I, I, I wasn't looking into this with the eye of Smiley Face Killer. I was just looking into it with the eye of the Patrick McNeil death because I, I kind of isolated Patrick McNeil. I didn't feel that he was involved in the Smiley Face phenomenon because I thought it would be odd that the killer would so blatantly drop a body with so many marks on it when their modus operandi is to make sure that there's nothing on the body, no defensive marks, right? So I kind of thought, oh, I'm not really just investigating the Smiley Face Killer here. I'm investigating Patrick McNeil. But it led right back there, um, quite frankly. Um, so, as the as the ONA texts make clear, each person following the uh, ONA's esoteric sevenfold way is expected to undertake at least one culling, a human sacrifice, when they attain the occult grade of external adept. This culling can be done by either or be done either during an occult ritual or, as several texts make clear, by practical means such as assassinations or staged accidents. Such a culling can also be undertaken either by employing a proxy who is manipulated into doing the deed or as part of an insight role, which you mentioned earlier. So the basis of an insight role is basically to take a position of power that allows you to cull um, without basically anyone knowing that it's a culling. So some people have speculated that, you know, World War One was a giant culling, right? Just for fun, right? People have speculated that. Or the well, Holocaust, that be, I, right? Yeah, that would be the idea of an insider role. Somebody who's, you know, in a position of power and says, oh, I'm going to press this nuke button, right? Because I want to, you know, cull some people. Um, call these dross, you know, call these right. people who I think are blocking evolution of society. That is what an insight role is, um, which is quite interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, first, because we've already seen a couple of people in insight roles come out as being ONA followers, which I don't know if you want to touch on. Yeah, I do. Can you talk about that, please? Um, well, I'd, li I'd like for you to, I think you know a little bit about that more than I do, but I know that well, I was going to, I was going to say though, that they've not only come out as in, uh, as uh, insight roles, but they've also, um, they've also, um, there's also been a lot of interesting queries with these cases where police officers have been the last person to see the victims. One case in particular being Nathan Kapfer, where he's picked up for a citation, um, allegedly right. dropped off by the police at 2 a.m. And then he ends up becoming a very common smiley face victim. He's in the water drowning and 
So there's there's a, a lot of cases like that. That's just one. Right. Or, the, or the bouncers, right? The bouncers could be in some kind of strange role. There's suspicious things with, uh, oh, let's see, Zach Marr, Boston, um, the guy in Minnesota, Chris Jenkins. You know, there's all these people who are around. Or the uh, bo- was it, the guy outside of Philadelphia who has all these suspicious people around. I mean, there's all kinds of strange things with these cases where somebody's either involved or a woman is there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't think of all of them offhand, but there, there's some known. Uh, there's a lot of cases things, that yeah. make that make you that make you relook about this insight role thing and think yes. of to yourself, okay, there's something. There might be something there. Right. Um, but maybe do you want to? So the, there have been people in insight roles who have come out. Um, maybe you, would you like to maybe touch on that? What are you referring to? Insight roles as in general ONA or in regards to the SFK? There was that one soldier, I think, who was right. His name is to. Ethan Melser. This is a very recent case. Um, I'm just going act- to I'm just going to hop to the washroom. You want to touch yeah. on that for the yeah, viewers? Sure. I'll be back in yeah. two seconds. Yeah. No problem. Ethan Melser, also known as Etel Regad, which backwards is Dagger Light. He was in the FBI, U.S. Army, joined the ONA in 2019 had an article with the title, A Harvested Soldier, on his iCloud account. It's very interesting. He was arrested by the, at the Southern District of New York, um, also where they just arrested Maxwell. So they put this guy in, Ethan Meltzer, I think one month before. I think his, uh, I think his arraignment was in June. So, for, you know, this is all very frequently. But this Ethan Meltzer, he tried to contact the ONA and was trying to set up his fellow um, military guys for some type of t- deadly ambush. So this is the title from the Department of Justice, Monday, June 22nd, 2020. U.S. Army Private Ethan Melser sent sensitive U.S. military information to members of a neo-Nazi group in an attempt to facilitate a mass casualty attack on Melser's army unit. He's 22, Melser from Louisville, Kentucky. And he sent stuff regarding the location, movements, and security of his U.S. Army unit to members of an extremist organization named the Order of Nine Angles, or O9A, and a cult-based yeah. neo-Nazi and white supremacist group. Meltzer is charged with conspiring and attempting to murder U.S. nationals. Um, so he is um, in real deep trouble. And it's interesting that her name was, I think, Strauss is the same person who did his case, or is she's the acting U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York after Berman got fired, and she was the same person at the press conference for Elaine Maxwell. So the ONAs popped up again. This case was not, uh, to my knowledge, not heavily covered in the media, but I think it's an important case. And even the the some of the uh, journalism that was done on the, some of the articles show a picture from Meltzer's uh, desk and he has ONA literature on the desk. There's a picture of the literature. Correct. And that just is a great example of an insight role, right? The fact that people are reading this literature and actually giving effect to this literature in real and, life. And culling, right? So I don't, they didn't use that term in these articles or anything like that. Which is but, fantastic, right? They love to avoid it. They love to yeah. just not, they don't, they want to, they don't want to stir the satanic panic, right? No, they don't. But that's another interesting point you make because they call it a neo-Nazi organization. But the ONA really is much worse. Well, I mean, neo-Nazis are terrible, but it's a much stranger ideology than that. Can you talk a little bit about that? I've got to take a tiny little break. Okay? No problem. So 
What's interesting about culling within the ONA philosophy is that they don't just call random people. So they call they call the people who they choose for sacrifice offers. And offers are never chosen at random, but rather selected on the basis of their character. And as such, because they're selected on their character, um, it takes us back to the homo hubris connection, right? So we have Anton Long claiming that you can't call just anyone. They have to show by their deeds that they have rotten character, that they are not, that they are worthy of calling. Um, so. All right. Sorry about that. I'm back. No, it's fine. Um, I'm just, I'm talking about uh, where we, uh, in terms of offers and the fact that they don't, um, they don't just call anyone, um, right. which takes us back to the homo hubris and the good timer archetype. They're looking for people who, by their actions specifically, um, show themselves to be um, needing of culling or specifically show themselves to be the problem with evolution. Um, right. And as I said, which is so interesting, he t- Anton Long himself ties us back to um, alcohol. He ties us back to, um, as I said, the good timer archetype, which is literally right down the alley of what the smiley face killer um typology of the victims is did Um, you talk about the examples that are in um one of the writings about offers correct um there there's there's a there's a cut i didn't cover that yet um i mean this was the one of the things you showed me and i just my jaw dropped i was like wow that's incredible I'm telling your viewers, you need to start reading this literature because if you're a smiley face killer guy, this is, this is, um, quite compelling. Um, so I'm just talking about calling in terms of how central it is to the ONA philosophy. So not only is calling a a way for them to basically affect their main goal, but calling is also a way for them to, um, prove a, that the person who does the calling is basically ONA enough to be ONA, right? Because it's right. a, it's a, it's a, it's a path to get to a higher rank, but right. also to, um, to, uh, to basically just um, to uh, make sure that uh, the, uh, like to, to basically show, they're basically saying calling is our way of showing that we're real Satanists. We don't think other people are real Satanists. And we are exemplifying that we are real Satanists by calling. That is what they're right. saying. Yes. And they say, he says that specifically. This is what distinguishes <laughs> us from wannabes or something. I, I mean, I don't remember the quote verbatim, but he definitely, or whoever's writing that, Anton Long or whoever, uh, is basically saying that. Satanic, right. in effect, satanic sacrifice is conscious evolution in action. There you go. That's what that's what they view it to be, and as I said, they view the homo hubris, the the um, what what he calls it, the good timer archetype, which is in Anton Long's words, the good timer archetype. Um, um, that's what they view as like prime culling material, um, and quite frankly, if 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 you view that archetype, there's other places to find that archetype. You go to a high school, find that archetype in a second. You could go um, to uh, to the movie theater, right? 
But the problem with that is that how, how do you get them? Right. Where, where's the, where's the MO there? Right. Right. The reason why bars are targeted, as I said, is that I mean, quite frankly, there's no other situation in a, in a young man's life when he is as vulnerable as when he's walking out of a bar drunk at two or 3 AM at a night in a, in a night. Agreed. Agreed. If he wasn't drunk, if he wasn't drugged beforehand, if Some he's drunk beforehand, I mean, good luck to him. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's nobody on the streets. I mean, it's cold. It's dead cold outside. I mean, they're obviously picking really cold nights as well to make sure that nobody's outside. Um, that's another theme that I noticed among a lot of cases. Um, anyways, so let's continue on the culling aspect of it. Um, so it appears, so, so some people have said, okay, nobody's come out from a ONA and said publicly that they've, claim that they've called. However, Anton Long in the culling test describes calling to be undertaken in a practical manner as to avoid suspicion, right? Because he says the only way to actually affect long-term aonic change is to be able to call on a long-term, right? Anyone who goes out there and calls one person and then goes behind bars for a hundred years, have you really affected aonic change? No, your goal is to not be caught because right. then you can continually affect aonic change affect evolution um right, he specifically states that yes correct he right. specifically uses the words avoiding suspicion right um practical undertaking a practical culling um and this leads back to a word for a wordful tale which is what you were referring to correct yes please yeah yeah when your jaw dropped that's what you were referring to i as forget a the titles yes i think you're right yes the one with the four examples the four examples i we might be referring to something different okay well you tell me what the workful tale is i'm sorry okay so yeah and then maybe maybe it might be the same thing okay. so um it takes us back to a wordful tale which is a fiction, I don't know if it's written by Anton Long, it could be written by somebody in the ONA, it's clearly in ONA speak. Um, fiction, it's online, you can go read it yourself, where two um, women undertake a culling. Um, and what happens here is two women live in a very unassuming house, wearing unassuming clothes, no jewelry, nobody would ever know they were Satanists, nobody would ever know that they're involved in anything criminal. If you ran into them on the street, you would think they were normal, um, undertaking a culling. Um, how do they? How do they? How do they get their victim? They go to a bar. How do they get him in, uh, in, uh, unconscious? They drug him. What do they do? They dump the body in the water. Um, and this, incredible. this, yeah, it's incredible. It, it could be Anton Long writing that. But it leads back to exactly what his philosophy is: is people undertaking culling aren't people who are carving a pentagram into the forehead of their victim and right. And, right. Uh, and rape and raping their victim and saying, hail Satan, you know, like that's, that's not it at all. Right. That's not what he, he's talking about at all. He's talking about someone who can long-term practically affect aonic change. Somebody who will do a culling and then won't get caught. So they can continually serve the ends of, you know, um, of the, the aims, the, the goals. Right. And I think he quotes here in world for word for tale, Quote, no occult jewelry, no trendy hairstyles, no tattoos or body piercings. Their clothes and accessories were discreet and understated elegance replicated in the interior of their home. Yeah, he's making, he's going out of his way to say that they're making sure that no suspicion lies on them. In the culling texts, Anton Long says 
that the calling should be undertaken without avoiding suspicion. And he references calling works of the ONA to basically go and look at to see how you do it without avoiding suspicion. One of the references is a wordful tale, right? Right. So Anton Long is basically saying, go look at a wordful tale if you want to find out how you can get away with calling without under undergoing suspicion. So it's an interesting story. I would, I would, I would, uh, I would uh, prompt any of your viewers to go and take a read. Um, but um, absolutely fantastic um, read, though. Yeah, it's crazy too because they also mentioned like the the girls know forensic science, detailed knowledge of anatomy. Like there's they've studied up on it and prepped for the death. It's really so that disturbing. that's what I thought was so interesting is he says so the girls went into certain. The girls learned their occult ways and then went into certain occupations is what he said. And then went into appropriate occupations so they could undertake callings. The problem that I have with that is most people who are ON, who are reading this literature and who want to be ONA, and to be ONA, you have to undertake a culling of the dross of these type of people we're talking about, the Meiji and Homo hubris. You have to do it. They're saying quite clearly you have to do it to be ONA. Anyone who wants to do it, um, Think of, think of that. So let's think of 100 people who are reading this and want to do it. How many of those 100 people are going to have um, that type of training? Zero? <laughs> One? Right? Nobody's going to know how to, that know, how to take apart a body, uh, the anatomy of a body to, uh, to dissect it uh, perfectly. You know? So what, what would most people do instead of dissecting the body and dumping it at water? They'd just throw it in there. <laughs> you just throw it in there. Right. Exactly quite frankly and then also they, it's interesting because i was reading that it brought to mind christopherson who i included in my first sfk film who was a student of forensic science like i don't know i know he was in the um illuminates of Thanateros and was a crowley fan but it makes you kind of wonder what else these guys have read exactly and there's a lot of connections to crowley in this i mean they talk shit about crowley but yeah. i mean as you were saying they have the their uh, their sigil is part of has some kind of Crowley connection. Right. Well, saying. the sigil goes back to the Goetia, which was translated by Crowley and McGregor Mathers. They kind of, the aeonic forms, the idea of aeons goes back to Crowley. They use the K, the 11th letter of the alphabet is a K. Their symbol is nine angles. It's an overlay of Crowley's six pointed universal hexagram and a pentagram. So there's all kinds of, you can tell that they've went through it, but like they went through and digested, somebody went through and digested Crowley and then created something else out of, you know, the knowledge, what they wanted to out of the knowledge of what they had from Crowley, seems like. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to say that uh, considering the connection to the Goetia, as you said, from their uh, from their uh, sigil, yeah. um, it's interesting to, to mention the, the odd connection to Sea Tree, which is a also a Goetia sigil, which is basically a sigil for a god that I guess can make people become naked, which the sigil is oddly enough, a smiley face. So some people have made this connection. I think some guy on Facebook uh, titled smiley face killers information had made that connection, Mm -hmm. um, which was extremely interesting um, in the regards that it's just like a odd, like side connection that was made. Um, But uh, I mean, that's, that's neither here nor there with our theory, but I thought I would mention it to just kind of throw a little bit of a, props yeah. to that guy yeah i mean yeah this the you got to really be careful when you start reading this material it's really disturbing 
It's very disturbing. Oh, it's 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 extremely uh, labyrinth-like. They made it they made it that way on purpose um, to basically um, not only basically filter true people. Like, so if you actually want to become a Satanist, then you will actually get through all this stuff, and you'll you'll put the work in to get through the labyrinth. Whereas if you don't truly want to become a Satanist, you'll get lost in the labyrinth, then you'll just stop, and you know it'll be over. Right. And that was their goal. Yeah, I think they succeeded. I think the lat's actually somewhat similar to Crowley as well, where he blinded everything. There's all kinds of weird things where you'd have to ask somebody what this really means. And I think that that might, you know, have some kind of similarity between the ONA and the OTO. <clears throat> really detailed kind of rituals and different ritual ideas. Yeah, the ONA is a really a different animal, no question. So, I mean, I want to I want to stress to your viewers. I'm not trying to say that this theory is 100% affirmed. I mean, we're just kind of me and Will are kind of working on this together. Um, Will, as far as I'm concerned, um, is is equal on this theory because he, I mean, was the, the largest proponent of the occult angle, uh, and I would probably not be talk, even like discussing or looking into the occult if it wasn't for all his videos. So, I mean, I I do owe him quite a bit of. Uh, um, props for that <laughs> well yeah i mean i it's uh i i think that the ideas in this are you know the cell structure the contempt for other people uh fit into the kind of F- sfk kind of phenomenon but uh you know it doesn't account for well, some of these things of like why are they keeping them why is people missing for 40 days is there a sexual component i don't know but, I mean, yeah, the, the cases seem to be grouped into the type of case where the person's missing for a long period of time or where the person ends up in water quite quickly, like within a week or two. Right. So I totally agree with you, and I, I, I do agree that no one theory will explain all these drownings because, as I've already said, um, if you want to get away with murder, everyone knows it. I mean, you dump a body at water, I mean, right? right. It's, it's right. For, for years and years and years. Um I mean, even, I mean, the TV show Dexter obviously glorified that, but it's just the most common method of disposing a body. Um, And as I said, men are very vulnerable when they're leaving bars. So to say that one person is using this modus operandi is absolutely absurd. I mean, I assume there's dozens and dozens and dozens of people, Bruce MacArthur types, you know, who are preying on people using this modus operandi. Yeah. And who knows Um, how many other people Bruce MacArthur killed? You know, they found people in potted plants and stuff like that, but what are these other missing people? Where else, you know, who else could, yeah. Un- unconfirmed victims. Right. Right. Um, right. What, did you know great. what his number was? He was, he was uh, in Toronto, right? Or outside of Toronto. I, yeah. I believe, I believe so. Yeah. Toronto. Do you, do you know what his total victim count confirmed victim count was eight? I, d- I do not know. Um, but um, I do know that his his case is quite interesting because it does draw a lot of parallels with this, yeah. um, with the smiley face killer. And it um, went on for a long period of time, decades. He's clearly active for a very long time. Correct. Um, but, um, I mean, me and Will are going to continually be doing more research on this theory. Um, there's a lot of things that kind of uh, are still begging to be kind of uh, – looked into points can you go into that whole thing that one part that you sent me i don't know which part of the literature it was but i think it also ties into the sfk where it was talking about the four examples or illustrations of op for specimens do you remember that part that that was the calling, in the yeah, context? i think so that was the one about the young man of weak character remember that yes yeah, so in the in the calling texts they specifically talk about calling young men of weak character 
age 21 on the spring equinox or the or the uh or the autumn solstice i'm not sure if i got those mixed up well i mean is I that what you're really referring get, to well i was yeah the one the, the one that they say that he's too, he's with his friends he's too weak and cowardly to do anything provocative on his own he's often drunk oh yes would you like to elaborate on that i forgot about that that was yeah. really early in my research but that yeah, was that was one yeah. of the first things you sent to me because that was like it fits right into the sfk thing so they provide four ideas or whoever wrote this provide ideas to you know who you're who you're allowed and they use a young man as a lout i'll read the whole paragraph this is the yeah, first example of four sorry it just is, to jump in you're saying you're saying these are examples of typical offers that a person who is following the ona who wants to affect ona change can go and basically safely call right, right. and be, right. be safe with so that's what these four examples are so you can here continue, yeah. here here is this is the intro many examples might be presented to illustrate this but four will suffice although it should be remembered that these are merely illustrations specimens to throw light on the underlying principles involved one a young man of weak character no self-discipline a lout of the worst kind spends his time stealing cars and committing petty crimes he lives on social security benefit and has a disdain for nearly everyone which he shows by his loudest, loudish, foul-mouthed behavior. When he is with his friends, of course, since he is too weak and cowardly to do anything provocative on his own, he's often drunk. On one occasion, he steals a car with some of his cronies, is chased by police, but escapes. During this chase, he crashes into some other cars, and two people are injured, one of whom is a young woman who sustains serious injuries and effects which will be with her for the rest of her life. Sometime later, this loud and some others break into the home of an elderly blind man. The man attempts to stop them and enrages this loud who beats the old man unconscious. The elderly man has fought in the Great War of 1918 and had been awarded several medals for gallantry. After this beating, the loud is rather proud of himself and considers he is something of a hard man. This loud is a typical example of the modern dross modern society produces in such profusion in which this society does nothing effective about. His character and his actions make him a suitable candidate for sacrifice. His removal will be a culling, benefiting evolution and be an act of natural justice, restoring balance. Satanic judgment would give him a chance to redeem himself, make something out of himself, be a test designed to show he has any potential. Should he fail these tests, he would be regarded as an offer. Exactly. So let me, let me say something for your viewers. So, Think about that typical type of person. If you were to collect him as an offer, as an offer, as a sacrifice, how would you find that type of person? Where would you go? Would you go to a school? Would you go to a movie theater? Right. No, you would be going to a bar somewhere where somebody is overindulging, you know, loutish behavior. The word lout is almost synonymous with drunk, right? right. Like right. somebody who's, you know, drunk and uh, like, you know, obscene and loud and, right. um, so um, they're basically uh, using the exact typology of the smiley face killer victim as an example of the type of person they should call. And if you lead back to the wordful tale, which Anton Long uses as an example for why you should or for how you should do it without avoiding suspicion, you see the exact, um, you see basically the, the footprint for the modus operandi of the smiley face killer. So you have both kind of connections there. Um, which is really interesting. And it's spelled word, W-Y-R-D, wordful. And I think that goes back to kind of old English, um, you know, yeah, kind of, kind of that's the, the spelling of it. 
and there's some kind of weird thing like the word is is comes some kind of holistic view so he's kind of placing his ideology back in kind of prehistory i think that that i don't remember how that word you know is defined but uh yeah pretty yeah it's just incredible incredible material I mean, it's crazy to think that we know from reading some of these materials that there are these groups or cells, or they call Nexians or Nexiums all over the world, because there's one in Italy that produced a whole bunch of material, and you can tell that they were absorbing and digesting ideas of the ONA, right? Yeah, all these culling, hubris, Magian ideas, it's all in there in the Italian literature. Yeah. Um, What's so crazy is they say that, you know, as they stress, I think Anton Long, I'm pretty sure Anton Long, I don't know because sometimes you're not sure who's writing these materials, but they're all from the same source in terms of websites, right? Right. Um, that, um, that, um, that, um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Well, you were just talking about the sources. I mean, I know that I've looked into and seen that there are other zines containing this information written by people who are not um my are not claiming to be mayan or long i mean perhaps yeah. they're another one but that would be incredible but it seems like people are playing off or riffing off the original ona materials correct and that's kind of what ona is is it's essentially a ideology which acts as a fungal infection that gets kind of into other more infrastructured elements and kind of permeates them um what my point was before i kind of um had a little brain fart there was that they are making sure that uh, the uh, that culling is essentially uh, is uh, is like the center of the uh, ideology, right? Like there's no other uh, there's no other way that they're explaining that you can affect aonic change, right? That we've been writing about, and you can do it by yourself. So Anton Long is saying that yes, you can have an axion, yes, you can have multiple people, but you can do this major aspect of achieving ONA credibility and ONA stature by yourself, right? Um, which we see in the wordful tale where it's only two people committing the culling and it could potentially have been one, right? Um, you don't need five people. You don't need a group like the Adam Waffen or the uh, some kind of left-wing group to uh, left-wing, right-wing group to, uh, to uh, go out and do cullings for you. You can go and do this by yourself, you can follow that, the, the playbook, so to speak, that Anton right. Long has written. Yes. And that's exactly what Adam Waffen, the sinister aspects of ONA and Adam Waffen are that. If somebody picks up that material and they're, they're commended for being lone wolves, you know, they're commended for being, what does they call them, an ONA Niners or something like that, a Niner term. So there's a, that's really the kind of secret danger. And, and then if you look at these, these guys who are, I mean, this was one of the things from the Italian literature is he's describing his insight role, you know, where he, this guy flat out said that I presence the sinister without ritual and without occult paraphernalia. So they are encouraged not to have external signs of what they're up to. It's just yeah, because really it doesn't it doesn't aid their ends, right? Their right. ends are to affect actual change, not to make people know that they're Satanists, right? And to go behind bars and to you know get in trouble for what they're doing. Um, I think what what we should bring it back to is the archetype I talked about earlier, which is the archetype of the deadly outlaw and the warriors of Vindex. Um, so he's saying right that 
warriors of Vindex can be tribes or deadly outlaws. And the warriors of Vindex come together under the charismatic leadership of Vindex to write their names and that of their tribes into the history of our human species and who represent par excellence, the triumph of aristocratic personal honor over the lifeless and personal tyrannic abstractions of the Magians, over the dishonor of the Hubriati, and over the plebeian self-indulgent nature of Homo hubris. So he's basically saying you can either be a single outlaw or an or a Nexion or a tribe. You, it doesn't matter. You can still follow the way of Vindex and basically write your name into history by calling uh, certain people and affecting evolution. Right. So then um, the idea of a Nexion is almost synonymous with a, basically a cell structure, right? So the Nexion, my understanding, has to have five people anywhere. And the weird thing also is that the way that, or what I understood from reading the ONA material is they were kind of picky about who they were going to bring into the group. They didn't seem to want to just pick anybody. They, I think I read somewhere, at least it was long or Maya said like, if we had three people over a 10 year period, that would be fine. You know, that's why they used culling as basically the bar to, to basically, or the, the, the filter to filter out basically the, the true Satanist or the true ONA people from anyone else who basically isn't, I guess, Satanist enough to call. Um, so the, the, the role is called external adept, and that's the final role that there is any publicized literature about in terms of being able to surpass that role. So there's a bunch of roles in ONA. I won't go through They're them. grades, right? They're grades, so you're going up the grades, right? Yeah, it's like a, yeah, exactly. And the last grade where they have any information about how to, how to get past that grade is external adept. And how do you get past the grade of external adept? You undertake a call. That is the, that is the only way you get past. Um, and that's the last. So anyone who's reading this stuff, there's a bunch of uh, earlier stuff that you have to do. Like they're saying, you have to like, anyways, for, for earlier, for earlier to get up to earlier ranks, you have to do other stuff. But to get up to the final rank where there's no other information possible for you to know how to get to even more ranks, they say it's oral at that point, right? You have right. to know, you have to hear it oral tradition right. um, is external adept with culling. So it's the final step, right? To basically saying, hey, listen, I'm ONA now, right? right. Which is crazy because and it's a, that's an argument to like somebody who says, well, it's probably, you know, they're probably just joking about culling and they're, they're not really serious and you know, they don't, they don't actually want to call people, you know, that would be my answer to them. I mean, the way that it's integrated in all of the literature to me, you know, the, the, somebody who drafted this wanted to make that a, a core part of the entire, entire religion, so to speak. It's uh, a horrible argument anyways, that, that, uh, that this wouldn't, uh, that, that people like that, that this is all a joke and that they're not actually serious about culling. Cause as you said, you know, when you read, when you read the actual, when you read the actual material, you quickly realize that, uh, that uh, to, to, to admit that would to admit that their entire philosophy is non-existent. Right. <laughs> right. No, it's, I mean, they talk about tests, they talk about ordeals, they talk about all these things you have to do about character changing events um, it's all there. They're hinting at all this stuff to me. And also they, they said that there were certain times that were alchemical seasons between autumn equinox and winter solstice, which comports with kind of like upticking cases because they, there aren't as many in the summer, but in the winter, 
much more, especially on holidays. Oh yeah, I mean the basis of the cases start from I guess October to Mar to March or something, March, right? Yeah. Right. And then um, that's exactly what they're saying right there. Is there's a spot where he says you have to do it at the autumn equinox or the spring solstice, which is exactly in line with what we're seeing when these cases are popping up. Here's a quote, if I can just put this in. This is a quote. If there's one thing which expresses the essence of the satanic ethos, it is calling. And if there's one way to detect a pseudo-satanist, it is in their attitude to calling. So they're putting it in writing there. So the, the calling is the kind of doorway to whether this person's legit or not within the ONA uh, standards, you know. That's exactly why those arguments don't make sense. So if I could tell somebody, hey, jump off a cliff, and he jumps off a cliff, and I say on the way down as he's falling, hey, I, you know, joking, you know, didn't really mean it, <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, that's great now that I'm falling off the cliff. That's the same thing with this stuff. So if somebody's going to argue that, hey, they didn't really mean it, you know, they're just joking, which is what I seemingly see from a lot of people. They're like, oh, you know, nobody's ever admitted to a calling, you know, it's all a big, you know. It's all a big ruse, just like Satanists. They're always trying to, you know, be more Satanist than the next guy. But that doesn't mean that somebody can't pick this up like a loaded gun and use it. Right. Right. Well, you can just talk about this Meltzer kid, right? He came across the ONA and he was about to pick it up as a loaded gun. Yeah. Exactly. He had some unimpressionable. I looked into the guy from, uh, I think his name was Copeland in the UK, who got some of this National Socialist, Socialist. movement literature and stuff like that and did the same thing he did all these nail bombs a very famous case in england 1999 so uh and with reading literature from this guy myatt slash long slash whoever Mm -hmm. so there's gonna you know they may lose 999 out of a thousand but that one out of a thousand goes oh this is for me right Well, exactly. And at the end of the day, that's all they need is one of a thousand, right? Because as you said, that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for it to be proliferated around society. They're looking for basically um, very, very few individuals who basically can get through all this labyrinth um, and who have the guts, I guess, to get past the external adapt phase, um, which is the culling phase. It's incredible. So I've got to wrap this up. Sarsky, do you want to add anything? Is there anything I missed? How do you want to kind of put the bookend on this discussion? No, I think we've done a good job kind of putting it out there for your viewers. As I said, our goal here isn't to kind of like affirm our theory here. It's more to kind of give it to the public so the public can start looking into it. Um, One thing we know about smiley face killer researchers is they love a new theory. They love getting their, you know, their, uh, their, uh, hands dirty so to speak and this is the perfect theory for that because there's so much literature there's so many connections to the smiley face killer uh victim typology to the modus operandi to um to uh to uh the uh the motive right the motive in terms of finding a motive why they would possibly be doing this because that's what everyone's really been wondering right why would somebody be doing this yeah they're not they're obviously not it's not sexual or some might be sexual but as you said but you know, it's not overtly sexual, right? They're not being raped, right? So they're, and they're not being harmed. So what's the purpose? Um, it, you know, it accounts for that. It accounts for almost everything, um, which is why it makes for such an interesting rabbit hole to jump into. Um, and I, I, I kind of uh, encourage all your viewers to kind of uh, give it a try and see, uh, see what you find. Maybe you guys find some more juicy stuff that I haven't already. And how can people reach out and contact you if they're interested in asking you questions? 
Sure. So um, I have no problem sharing all of my information um, in terms of all the research that I've done. I have way more than what I said today. Today's kind of just like a teaser tester, you know, um, and if anyone emails me, they can kind of get the whole package. No problems with that. Um, my goals here are to spread awareness, not kind of any personal goals, um, purely to spread awareness. As Will will know, I came to him right away with the theory. Um, I could have, uh, I could have excluded him, um, or he could have excluded, taken my theory and excluded me. So I think the fact that we both didn't do that and we're both working together shows that we're both good guys, um, and we both have very, uh, very. Um, noble um noble desires not any you know personal desires within what we're doing here um so my email is um y dot s-a-r-s-k-y at gmail.com y dot s-a-r-s-k-y at gmail.com well i want to commend you too because this kind of look um opened my eyes to a lot of other things that may have happened in the past too and particularly the sfk cases but other odd things that I have seen people who would all be on the left-hand path have said. And I'm convinced now after reading this, that they have also familiarized themselves with ONA literature. And I'll, I'll tell you who I think that is. Some of those people are offline, but I've seen that symbol that the ONA uses of the trident and uh, that three-pronged trident. I've seen that around before. So uh, really opened my eyes to a lot of things. So I commend you, Igor, for, uh, bringing this forward, I think it takes a lot of courage, but uh, also there's there seems to be definitely some traction between your ideas and the, the smiley face killer phenomenon. So I commend you as well. Well, thanks. And um, I mean, I, uh, as I said, my email is open to anyone who wants to uh, talk about it. And um, I mean, hopefully we can get some people who are interested in actually delving into this theory more than me and you, and we can maybe start a, uh, a uh, chat. I don't know what people are using these days if they're using... Uh, I don't know. I mean, is it a Facebook group or is it, uh, I don't know, one of these video game apps type things, streaming apps? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. we'll figure something out. Yeah, let's Maybe keep in get touch. Some get some collaboration going, right? Because that's yeah. the best. For sure. All right. Thanks so much, Sarsky. I really appreciate it. Again, uh, your email is y.sarsky at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys.